All right, come on in, take your seats. Take your seats. As Marley mentioned, if you are next door eating your burrito, you are done now. And you can come on over, if, unless you were at first service, then keep mingling. Uh, we are having our burrito feed after this service as well, so don't worry, you did not miss anything. My name is Amy. If we haven't met, I am part of the staff here at Sierra Bible Church, and I want to welcome you. If you are new here this morning, you can go ahead and grab the little info card on the front pocket in front of you. Yep, I think I said that kind of right. And, or you might know a friend, and you can grab it too, and you can pass it off in the community and give it to someone, invite them to church. Uh, all right, everyone's settling down here. You all right over there? Okay. All right, so let's get going. I have a few things to let you know about before we get going in the Word today. And I have mentioned them before. We have our Passover feast this Friday. No, it's not this Friday. I'm sorry. I don't know. It's March 31st. It is a Friday. It's March 31st. And there are seats still left for the Passover feast. I know that the only reason this is the case is because there are many of you who do not want to commit and do not want to make that commitment until a day before it happens. Well, it's going to be too late. So if you want to come, you do need to commit. We want you to register. It's $10 per person. That includes your children. You can bring your kid. You can have them next to you. They're $10. Or you can bring them next door to child care, which we are having. They get fed as well. And so everyone that is attending, you do need to register. And then once it's all full, it's full. And you will not be let in because I think the event will be full. All right, so that's March 31st. And then a little ways after that, we have our Good Friday and Easter services. Uh, Good Friday is three days or so before Easter. And that is at 6 p.m. We have, that will be in here. And we do have Children's Church next door as well for your kiddos. Um, a very intentional message will, um, is set up for those kids. And so that's happening good on Good Friday. And then Easter is our normal, regular times for those of you that are Usually here, 8.30 and 10.30. We are encouraging you, of course, to invite a friend or a family member. And we do have posters out front that you can grab and put up in the coffee shop near your house or at the rec center. I said this in the first service. There are posters out there in the community that I have seen, and they are not our posters. There are four other places to attend Easter, and we're not in competition with anyone. But in case we were, you have to grab the posters and put them out there in the community so that people know that we also have Easter service. So you can grab those on your way out. And then again, we are having our burrito feed. If you're not aware of why we're having that um, and you're not aware of so ministries, then we want to, we're going to play a video in a second. And then part of the team that's going to be going down to Baja, Mexico in a few weeks are going to share a little bit about why they're going. I am 44 years old. It's my beautiful wife, Amber. We live in Mexico in La Salina, and together we are the founders of So Ministries. We also work with four other orphanages alongside of our two children, Kyler and Lexi, 17 and 15 years old. And our family's been in Mexico 10 years doing ministry together. So Ministries stands for Serving Orphans and Widows Ministries. We started in 2014 and we just wanted to be a conduit to existing orphanages, providing transparency to our donors and support and stability to the orphanages that we serve. The mission for So Ministries is to glorify Jesus through providing excellent individual care for orphans and widows in need. And that comes from James 1.27. That's the heart of our ministry. And really the individual component is something that's critically important to us to make sure that each kid knows that they are loved, that they have gifts and talents from the Lord that God wants to use in their life and that um, they're worthy of His love and grace and that He died for them. And we want them to just know that in spite of what's happened to them, any kind of hardships, that God is there for them and that He loves them and has a plan and a purpose for their life a way that people can get involved and help us in a way that isn't financial is prayer. And then also sharing. Sharing the vision, sharing our ministry is a huge thing. 
We just want to encourage you to take the steps to get involved, whatever that means for you, however you feel that God is calling you to partner with us. We encourage you to do that. We know that God's going to bless you. And we just want to say thank you and God bless you. Hola. ¿Cómo está? Ah, bien. Dios te bendiga. Huh? God bless you. Uh, welcome, you guys, this morning. Um, I know it doesn't quite feel like spring yet, but we're getting there. Um, I'm Andy Finch. Next to me is Jeremy Rogelstad and David Armstrong with his Arthur and Henry Armstrong. They're coming along too, aren't you guys? Are you driving the trailer? Are you, you going to be driving? No? They're not driving? Remains to be seen. All right. <laughs> it is Mexico. Hey. Um, <laughs> so there's 25 of us going down total, uh, including, I think, about 10 youngsters. And we have jobs and projects for them, as you'll see even next door during the burrito feed. Uh, we are covering 100% of our travel um, expenses just so that everything that is donated goes to the orphanage. Uh, we want to make sure that the supplies needed get covered, uh, as, as well as shops, crafts, and games. Uh, one of the, some of the things we'll be doing while we're down there is we're going to be hanging drywall. We're going to be installing doors and toilets and sinks. Um, yeah, there's there's plenty to do down there, and that is so. We have till the uh, end of April to actually get in any donations that come in. So if you do want to donate um, this morning, you can do it at the burrito feed next door into the donation jars, or we have boxes in the back. You can fill out um, the envelopes. Put so on there. Uh, serving orphans and widows, if you uh, caught that during the video. Um, we got a, a variety of uh, food over there in the burrito, so you can do beef, chicken, or we have a vegetarian option as well. If you're quick, you'll get some guacamole. The first service left you some, so good on you there. And uh, we definitely need prayer. As you heard in the video, please be praying for us. Um, we Again, we're driving down there uh, with trailers and um, yeah, we could definitely use prayer, we're just that we're blessing them, that we're uh, doing a good work, and that, and that the Lord is with us, and, and uh, man, that his gospel is proclaimed loudly to that community. Uh, again, the, the heart of the organization was James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world, James 1.27. I miss anything, you guys? All right. Viva la Mexico. Let's, uh, <laughs> please come join some burritos uh, afterwards. And, uh, yeah, thanks for making me feel short, guys. All right. <laughs> Viva la Mexico. Oh, Hi. My name's Brad. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am honored to be with you this morning. And I, I mean that in all seriousness. I was struck freshly this morning um, that you are the bride of Christ. And this man, the man, trusts me with his wife. So hopefully this time will be useful for you. <laughs> Because I want to honor him by spending this time in a way that I hopefully will draw you closer to him. Uh, we're going to use scripture um, to... <laughs> if you're going to have a ring, you should go full send with it. Like not something, not something boring. We're going to use the Bible this morning. So if you forgot yours and want to borrow one of ours, just... Uh, just wave at Frank and or some other, maybe, maybe just Frank, and Frank will get a Bible in your hand. But, but yeah, we're going full sin. Uh, but we, we are going to use that Bible, open it up to John chapter 9. We were, we're done with the serve series. We're not done serving, but we are done talking about serving for a little while, except for a portion of what will be today. But when looking at an opportunity to try to speak to you, what I wanted to do this morning was to just share a story with you that I think is amazing. I, I don't use that word in the way that like people cheaply use it anymore 
or, or oh, it's a, it's amazing. You look amazing. Like, no, you spent two hours getting ready. You look like you spent two hours getting ready. You know, like that makes sense. But this story's legitimately amazing. There are amazing things that happen in this story. And I also want to just emphasize this for you before we start. And, and I, I just don't want it to be lost on you. If you had the pleasure like me of, of growing up in a church environment, sometimes we can get so used to the stories that are told in church that we forget these things actually happened. Like they're real. It's not just a story that we tell to try to illustrate something. The, the events that we will discuss this morning actually happened. It was actually witnessed by other individuals who then actually spe spread that witness in a text that you and I can now read. And what's even more important about John chapter 9 is the way that it's written, a large chunk of it, and we're going to cover almost all of it, a large chunk of it is essentially courtroom testimony transcribed for you and I to be able to see. The story is amazing, but it's nothing if we do not have the presence of the Spirit. So let me pray for that now. Jesus, you are King. We worship you. I've done my best to worship you by preparing something for your bride. God, work in their hearts. Let them receive your precious word. Speak to them in a way that helps them adjust themselves in a way that worships you. Because that's what this is all about. The worship of the king. We give this time to you. Amen. John chapter 9. Verse 1. And he was passing by. Who do you think he is? Safest church answer. Jesus. Yes. Jesus was passing by. And he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now you would think that the way that verse 1 starts, you would think that Jesus would be the first one to speak. But no. And asked him his disciples, saying, Rabbi, so the disciples are the first ones to respond to this situation. I want you to try the best that you can to put yourself in the shoes of the different characters in this story. We're introduced to a man who's blind from birth. Think of it for a moment. Maybe even close your eyes. Maybe if you want to go, go all the way, cover your eyes. Because he's never even seen the reflection of light through his eyelids. How easy would it be for me to go to work? I, there isn't a way for me to take care of myself. As a result, most likely he was sitting there begging. The text will later tell us he was begging. Can you see him? You can see him because you've seen it before. Imagine it. I was talking with somebody after the first service. You can open your eyes. You don't have to close them the whole time if you don't want to. If you want to like keep it hidden though that you're taking a nap, I'm cool with it. It's fine. Some of you might need one. I was talking with somebody after the first service and he was telling me about some of the experiences that he's had walking, especially through other countries and walking by blind beggars and seeing this human who, whose head is just hung low and their hand is just out. This is who this man was. He'd spent his entire life this way, having no other option. And then this group of people that he doesn't know are in front of him talking and he hears the group address a rabbi in the group. Rabbi, verse 2, who sinned? This one or his parents such that he was born blind? You see, the rabbis of Jesus' day taught that all suffering was either the result of an individual's sin 
or generational punishment. If you were suffering, it was because it was your fault or the fault of your ancestors. And that stemmed all the way back from a passage in Exodus chapter 34 that talks about how God is willing to forgive but allows for the effects of sin to go on for generation after generation. It's a question, though, that we naturally ask on a regular basis. When we see suffering, it's probably the most common question. Why? The world is actually stuck with that because they don't have an ability to question why things are the way that they are. It just is that way. They don't even have a right to be able to ask the question, why is it that way? Because it is that way. But those that were Jews, those who followed that there was something beyond the physical realm, looked for an answer. Who is it that sinned? This guy or his parents, such that he was born blind? Jesus makes sense of his suffering for us. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither this one sinned, nor his parents. But instead, in order that the works of God might be manifest in him. Now, this might make you a little bit uncomfortable. It might make you a lot bit uncomfortable. That God was willing to allow this man to live through an entire life up to this point of day in and day out suffering. How could God do that? Have you heard somebody even make the, make the argument before? How could God... Be loving and allow that type of suffering on a day after day basis for this man. It's a difficult truth. Whereas the kids like to say these days, it's a hard pill to swallow. That God really doesn't owe us anything. You know, there, there isn't a reason to think that God should help us avoid suffering. There isn't any grounds for us to think that God should protect us from suffering. But I can tell you this. God is in the business of redeeming suffering. Of making suffering worthwhile. Of creating beauty from suffering. Beauty from ashes. And we're going to see what that looks like as we continue with the story. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, It's necessary for us, or we must work the works of the one who sent me as long as it's day. Night is coming when no one is able to work. But while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. It's an interesting side point to look at verse 4 and understand that Jesus doesn't say, hey, it's necessary for me to do the works of the one sending me. He actually says it's necessary for us to do the works, his disciples and him, to be about God's work. You cannot be a follower of Christ and avoid being his co-laborer. We don't work to earn anything from Jesus, we work and we serve because we're following in his footsteps. That's what the rabbi-disciple relationship was. And Jesus says that my incarnation time, I mean, he doesn't use that word, but trying to make sense of the what's this whole long as it's day and night's coming and I'm the light of the world as long as I'm here. Jesus is saying my incarnation time in which I'm going to physically be here, it's got a time limit on it and we got to get on it. So there's this special moment that we are going to address. What is the special moment? Verse 6. After saying these things, and here's the first amazing part. And by amazing, I mean gross. Because he spat, he spit on the ground and made mud from the spit. Your version might say clay to try to like make it sound prettier. No, this is spit mud, okay? It's dirt that was on the ground and saliva from Jesus' mouth. And he hocks a loogie into the ground, stirs it around, picks it up, and then does what with it? He rubs it on the guy's eyes. It's gross. And you could try to read like, like I did into, well, in the, in the ancient world, saliva was thought to have medicinal properties. Like, really? I, I don't. 
what is going on here? And the truth is, I don't know. But that's what he did. And then says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. Did Jesus tell the guy, hey, I'm going to fix your eyes? Not a trick question. Look in the text. Do you see anywhere in the text where Jesus says, hey, I'm going to fix your eyes? No. Do you see him go, hey, I'm going to heal you? Nope. He just says, go wash. And if somebody had just hocked a loogie in the dirt and rubbed it on my face, it'd be like, yeah, okay, cool. Not a problem. I, I will gladly do this for you. But he left, therefore, and he washed, and he came back seeing. Jesus doesn't tell the man that he's going to be healed. He just instructs him to wash. And what we see in this man is the beginning of faith. We're going to find out by the time we get to verse 35 of this chapter that that's what Jesus was doing all along, was addressing faith with this man. But it starts with an active component. Many have come to understand that faith is just belief. It's just about merely mentally assenting to certain facts. But faith always has an active component in it. It starts with belief, then it acts, and through that process, commitment is formed. That's what faith means. And this man's faith journey is starting with him going to wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, a lot, of people under, a lot of people that have studied this text think that the distance where this initial meeting with Jesus is, is a bit of a distance from the pool of Siloam, such that he was, when he went to the pool, some time passed, and he didn't necessarily know what to do afterwards. He comes up out of the pool, and he can see. Now, if you think about it, you probably can't really imagine it too much, but try, think about at this point in your life, if your eyes have never perceived anything visual and then boom, you see everything. Think of how overwhelming that would be. Colors, light shades, different appearances of things, things that you've only smelled, things that you've only heard, now you're seeing it, it would be completely overwhelming. So what I would do, feeling completely overwhelmed, is go to the safest place that I know. I would go to my neighborhood. I would go to my house. I would try to get, probably like start to ease my way into society by going to a place that's safe for me. And so sure enough, that's what this guy does. Verses 8 through 12, what we see is his first interactions with people. Therefore, verse 8, those who lived around him that had seen him beforehand because he was a beggar, they were saying, hey, isn't, isn't this the one who was sitting and begging? And others were saying, yeah, this is the one. This is him. But others were saying, no, 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 no. no, no. This is, uh, it's, it's probably just a guy that looks like him. But the blind guy said, guys, it's me. It's, it's actually me. So therefore, they were saying to him, so, like, uh, how were your eyes opened? Like, how, how is it that you can see? Everything we've always known about you up to this point is that you're the blind guy. When we talk about you, we talk about the blind guy. You're not the blind guy anymore. What the heck happened? The one answered, verse 11, this man called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. When I went and I washed, I could see. And they said to him, well, where is he? Now, when he talked to Jesus, could he see him? No. So when they asked him, hey, which way did he go? He didn't know. Right? He couldn't see. I don't know. I don't know where he went. So this obviously is causing a major uproar in the town. 
The guy that everybody had known as the blind guy in town suddenly can see. And the only way to try to make sense of something huge like this is to try to bring this guy to the people whose job it is to interpret for you how the world works. So they bring him to the Pharisees. But when they do so, bringing him to the Pharisees, essentially they bring him to more or less a courtroom. And what's going to unfold in the story from here is the court transcript of what occurred in that court meeting. In courtroom scene one, we find that we get to a a fact-finding stage. And we start in verse 13. But before we start, John feels like we have to know something. Verse 13 They brought him to the Pharisees. Verse 14, it was on the what day? The Sabbath, when Jesus had opened his eyes. Now, if you've been around for a while, you know know where this is going. If you haven't been around for a while and you're brand new, let me give you a crash course on why this is being mentioned by John. The Jews had a rhythm to their week. And one day a week, the Sabbath day, was the day in which they were not allowed to do any work of any kind whatsoever. It was a complete day of rest. And God gave some specific instructions of what you could and could not do about that day. Now, the Pharisees recognized that this day was so important to their culture and to their worship of God that they took God's rules and they stacked some more on top of them. So you're allowed to walk, but you can only walk this far. You're allowed to eat, but you can't cook food. You can kind of like prepare it, but you can't cook it. That would be work. And they have all kinds of stacked rules on top of God's rules. What you're going to see is that apparently one of those rules, either spoken or unspoken, was you can't heal people on the Sabbath. I don't know. That doesn't make sense to me. But Jesus loved doing his healings on the Sabbath day. Because Jesus, for all the wonderful things that he was, one of them is he kind of was an instigator sometimes. And it's almost like, why'd you pick that day? Oh, because it provides opportunity to discuss more. So then we get to the courtroom. Verse 15. Therefore, they were asking him, the Pharisees were asking him, how did he come to see? And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. I kind of like how the story is getting shorter and shorter from the guy as we're going. You ever had to tell the same story over and over again? You're like, dude, I've I've already told this story a few times. Okay, I'm just going to get to the salient points. Mud on the eyes, wash, see now. Okay. Therefore, some of the Pharisees, verse 16, they were saying, this guy can't be from God. This man doesn't keep the Sabbath. He can't be from God. You know, the things that you think about God are important. It's not just theoretical information. If your understanding of God is a certain way, it's going to cause you to think that the world ought to work a certain way. So therefore, if you're inaccurate in your view of God, you're going to be frustrated by your circumstances in some way. Let me give you just a very direct example that I lived this week. Two days ago, uh, my wife had decided that she needed a different car, so we bought her another car, and the car is a wonderful car, except for when it rains outside, it also rains inside the car. (laughs) One of the things you don't find out when you buy a car in Sacramento. So we took it to one place, and they said that they fixed it, and it didn't get fixed, and we took it to another place, and they said that they fixed it, and it didn't get fixed, and they're like, you need to take it to the Ford dealership, and I went, because I hate car dealerships. If you work for one, I'm so glad that you have a job and God is providing for you that way. And I love you anyway, but I do not like going to your place of business. So I go to the car dealership and I give them my wife's car and they keep it for a few days. And then they call me up and say, okay, you can come pick up your car and that'll be about $500. I'm like, wow, 
okay? And I'm like, can I see the printout? Because the guy that actually takes your money, he doesn't know anything about your car. Can I, can I see the papers of like what you did to my car? Cool. I'm going through the papers while my wife's running the car, and I'm like, this, this says you didn't fix it. You're charging me $500 to not fix my car? I can do that for free. Well, you know, we checked these things and we think that you need to take it to these other people to do something else. At that point, what I did right was I shut my mouth, I walked out the door, and I started to fume in my own vehicle. And then I started to drive my vehicle home because we had to drive... two separate vehicles in order to pick up the car as I'm driving my vehicle home, I was not driving in a very pastorly way. I was saying very unpastorly things about people that were driving around me. Now you look at that and you're like, okay, Brad, that's justified. But as I fumed over and over again, and as I'm driving, I'm thinking, as God suddenly put this question in my mind, Brad, why are you so frustrated? And I'm like, because I had to spend all of this money and I didn't get anything for it. And God put this other question in my mind and says, so where do you get all your money? Oh. Oh, yeah. Like, when you said that you're actually going to take care of me if I follow you. When you said that you are going to feed me and clothe me and I don't have to worry about things like that when I follow you. I have to actually like believe that. I was so frustrated because I, in that moment, did not believe something that was correct about God and I wasn't taking him for his word. You see, you could be tempted to create all kinds of false expectations about God. God, if you really loved me, my marriage would be peaceful. God, if you really cared, my pockets would be lined with cash, my kids would be perfect, and my health would be on point. When you believe these falsehoods, you get stranded in the exact same spot as the Pharisees. If you can't see Jesus for who he really is and what he's really about, it's going to frustrate you. Back to the story. How could this, this guy clearly isn't from God, verse 16. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But there were others. One of the indications in the New Testament, one of the few places where some of the religious leaders are actually given some credit. Some of them were saying, how could a sinful man be able to do miracles like this? And there was a, and I love the word that John uses here. There was a schism among them, a division, a giant line. Trying to figure out How does this make any sense? Trying to figure out how is it that this guy does not obey the Sabbath, but he seems to do something that only those in God's power can do. How is this possible? So they turn, making sure that they get all the facts correctly. Verse 17. Hey, blind guy. What do you say concerning him? Since he opened your eyes. And he said, he's a prophet. Now, don't think that this is too limited an answer. This is actually probably the best answer that he could give. At this point, most people had no idea what to make of Jesus. But one thing that everybody knew is that if miracles were happening, God had to be at work. And the way that you interacted with the man-God connection to hear from God, to see God in action, was you saw it through the prophets. This man's faith journey is starting to increase. He's already had the active component and his beliefs are starting to form even stronger. There's something special about this guy. Now, the Pharisees were not willing to hear this answer, were they? I mean, you don't even need to read ahead in the story to know that there's more verses in the chapter. So something else must have happened. The court case continues, and we get to verses 18 through 23, where they they go, okay, look, if this guy doesn't obey the Sabbath, he's probably not from God, but if he's doing the signs, he probably is from God. Wait, wait, maybe what we can do is we can prove that the miracle never happened. 
That's what we'll do. And then that will help everything that we understand about the world and that God, that will make sense of it. So what do they do? They call in the guy's parents. Verse 18, they didn't believe that he who was blind received their sight. So they called the parents of the one having received sight. Verse 19, and they asked them three questions. One, is this your son? Two, was he born blind? And three, how does he see now? This is, this is an interesting line of questioning. If you ask question three, do you really need the answers to questions one and two? They're, they're already telling you that they, answer, they answered their own question. They know that something significant has happened. Verse 20, the parents answered and said, look, Question one, yes, this is our son. Question two, yeah, he was born blind, been blind his whole life. Question three, verse 21, but how he sees, we don't know. Who opened his eyes? I, I, I don't know. Why don't you ask him? He's old enough. He's mature enough. He can speak for himself. Why don't you let him speak for himself? Verse 22, they said it like this. They said these things because they feared the Jews. For already the Jews had resolved together that if anyone might confess him to be the Christ, that they would be kicked out of the synagogue. This is why his parents said, look, he's old enough. He's mature enough. Ask him. We look at the parents. They've verified that it's their son. They've verified that he was born blind, but they're not willing to go out on a limb for how this whole process has changed. And I encourage you to have a little bit of sympathy for the parents in this moment. Here's why. God forbid we ever come to this moment. But if we had to kick you out of our church, there's like 10 other churches in this town alone you probably could go to another one and hide there. There were not multiple synagogues in their towns. There was just the synagogue. There wasn't like Sierra Bible Synagogue and Tahoe Forest Synagogue and First Synagogue of the Nazarene. There wasn't any of that stuff. There was one synagogue. If you got kicked out of that synagogue, not only did it mean that no longer would you have a place where you could worship, but it also would excommunicate you from the people. For what is a Jew who is not capable of worshiping Yahweh in the synagogue? He's not a Jew. You can't be part of us if you claim that this man is the Christ. And so they're not willing to let themselves be chopped off from their church and their people to try to go to bat for what, how this whole process went down. So knowing that they're not going to get it from the parents, we go to courtroom scene three. We get some cross-examination of the blind guy. Verse 24 through 34. Start in 24. Therefore, they called out the man a second time who was blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. You see, the Pharisees rightly understood that this healing work that this man had experienced had to be a work of God. They just wrongly understood how God was working in Jesus. The man's argument in verse 25 is as elegant as it is unsophisticated. That's why I love it. Remember who this guy was. This was the guy who hung his head low with his hands out, just hoping that somebody would put money or food or just help him take care of his basic needs. This guy who had never been able to look at anyone in the eyes, anyone in the face, is now answering to the most powerful men in his culture. Verse 25 starts his answer. If he's a sinner, I don't know. Here's the one thing I know. I was blind, and now I see. I love how he starts his response. 
Because he doesn't start his response with some type of theological argument with the Pharisees. He doesn't try to justify why Jesus does what he does. He doesn't try to have an answer for every single problem that they could present. And this turns me to say to you, whose job it is, you, you, you who sit in these chairs along with me, the only reason you are kept around is that you might proclaim the excellencies of one who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's what Peter writes in his epistle. Your job is to communicate the truth of Jesus to people. Look at how simple that communication can be. Look, I, I'm, I'm not going to start by arguing with you. I don't feel like I necessarily have every single answer that I could possibly provide. The one thing that the Pharisees can't argue with, I used to be this way. Now I'm this way. That's where he starts. You know the one argument that can't be argued? They can't argue your story. You are living your story with Christ. When you share that story of Christ with other people, you don't have to have it all together. You don't have to have every answer. You don't have to know how you can defend every argument. Look, I, I find that stuff incredibly valuable. And there is good reason to grow in your knowledge of faith and learn to defend it. But there is no arguing against what God has done in you and with you personally. Start there. By the time we get to verse 26, we realize that the Pharisees aren't really asking questions to try to get the answers to the questions anymore. Verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Remember again, who's about to say what's saying this? The guy that has never looked a man in the eyes. He responded to them, um, I already told you and you didn't listen. Why do you want me to tell you again? Are you wanting to become his disciples too? Can you, the audacity, right? I love it. Because that's what happens when somebody has experienced so dramatic and obvious a change in their own life. They don't have to worry about it. As you can imagine, that answer didn't go over quite well with the Pharisees. Verse 28. So they angrily insulted him. They were berating him. They were attacking him. Yuck. We, do we want to be a disciple? You're his disciple. Like, I, I know you are, but what am I? Is literally like their response. You're his disciple, not us. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but this guy, we don't even know where he comes from. I can almost hear the man giggle in verse 30. He responded and said to this, well, isn't that something? Right? That's a loose translation of what's there. Isn't this amazing? You don't know where this guy comes from, but he opened my eyes. And then... He uses their own thinking, their own way of teaching to, to explain to them what they're not seeing. We know, verse 31, that sinners, God doesn't hear. But instead, if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, these are the ones that he hears. From the ages, from the beginning of time, never has it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of one having been born blind if this one was not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, look at the full circle that comes here. You were wholly born in sin and you dare teach us? Do you remember the question in verse 2 that started this whole thing to begin with? Who sinned? The Pharisees and the disciples are seeing the world through the same lens. You, blind guy, were born in sin, and you're going to dare teach us about how to understand this situation? And they threw him out. 
Now, after the courtroom scene is over, we get an aftermath scene outside. Verses 34 through 38. Just the section that I want to focus on. I'm sorry, 35 through 38. 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and, they, and he found him and said, do you believe or will you place your faith in the Son of Man? I want you to think about this conversation again. Imagine yourself there. Has this guy ever seen Jesus? He's never seen him. When Jesus was in front of him, he didn't see. Remember? Where did he go? I don't know. I couldn't see. He's never seen Jesus. Now this man stands in front of him, but there's something familiar. You see, when, you're, when one of your senses is taken, you, you know that some of your other senses are heightened, right? I bet you, to a certain extent, that this guy knew that there was something special about the man that was in front of him. There was probably a familiar sound to his voice and probably even a familiar smell when you look at a fresh baby, there's one over there if you need, if you need reminder. I, I, inevitably, every message, I'm going to make reference to babies. There are babies over there. Titus isn't as fresh anymore, but like fresh ones. I don't mean fresh in the smelly sense. I just mean new to the external world. That's all I mean. When you look at like a fresh baby and their eyes are opened, can they see anything? They're just like... Everywhere, right? They got nothing. How is it that they know that the person that's holding them is safe? It's the sound and the smell, right? That's why even now in the hospitals, they try to get dads early in on that thing so that you can, you can get the child familiar with the smell of dad and mom. These are the safe ones. These are the ones that you know love you. The sound and the smell is before him. But look at how Jesus asks the question, everything being intentional with him. Do you place your faith in the Son of Man? And he answered and said, look, this person that I know that, I'm, that I can hear and that I can smell, I'm will, whoever it is, I know that you are a big deal. Tell me who he is and I will place my faith in him. And Jesus said to him, you have what? You've seen him. Taking the very argument that started it all, you couldn't see, and now you do see. Jesus could have said, hey, it's me. Or, hey, you need to make sure that you understand my title at this point. But he just says, look at me, because now you can. You've seen him. The one speaking with you is that one. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. That word there that John uses for said in verse 38 is not strong enough. It's not just something that he uttered. That word, that, that verb there means to bring to light, to illuminate to produce an epiphany. He didn't just say something. He knew that he was proclaiming a major truth. His faith had resulted in action, which resulted in commitment, which resulted in the only thing that made sense at that point, to worship him. I'm going to stop the story there and invite the musicians to come up as we prepare our response so they can get their instruments all tuned up and we can get ready, but I ask this question whenever I read amazing stories. That's amazing, but what am I supposed to do with all that? Well, depending on where your heart is this morning, I offer the following possibilities. One, the people, all of the people involved in this account actually agreed on one thing. If someone was capable of making someone born blind able to see, 
This one must either be of God or so intimately connected to God that he had the power to be able to do it. Everyone in this story agreed. The Pharisees, the disciples, the blind guy, his parents, everyone knew that God had to be at work in order to produce the results of this miracle. So since all agreed to this, I will not mince words. This story was verified by the people who were present and standing there. This story was also reliably transmitted better than any other source of historical information. Thus, there is no making light of this Jesus of Nazareth. For those of you today who are just here checking things out or you're on the fence, I invite you to recognize that today is the day to face the facts. Jesus of Nazareth was no mere man or moral teacher. Those who directly encountered him found him worthy of their faith and their worship. And so should you. Option two. For those of you who are suffering, I turn to you with a heart of compassion and say, just hold on. I've spent my entire life, tens of thousands of dollars, the sweat of my brow and the tears in my eyes to know that this Jesus that this story discusses is who this man believed him to be. So I say this as genuinely as I can with the best of my understanding. God will allow you to suffer. And that suffering, it's going to last longer than you think it should. He hears your prayers to remove it and he is not ignoring them. You must trust me. You must trust him. The suffering has a point. It is not meaningless. He does care. He is at work in you. And he is still worthy of your faith and your worship. Finally, if I have not yet addressed you in group one or group two, I'll leave you with this simple exhortation, which, truth be told, it's the same one. Jesus is worthy of your faith, your committed, active belief. He is worthy of your worship. May you lavish it on him freely this week. Spirit, we know that we need your power to do that because we get so frustrated by the silliest of circumstances. A little bit of money, a frustrated relationship. I say silly because they're just silly in light of what is real about you. Not to cheapen them. They are hard things that you allow us to go through. But you're worthy of so much more difficulty. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our faith. Give us the strength to take just the next step forward in that path. Amen. Would you guys stand with us while we sing this last song?